0: Let's listen to this. <laughs> How about a sip before we begin? Oh, that's delicious.
1: Drinking Savignon Blanc while uh, chatting with the folk.
2: What could be better?
1: <laughs> Citrusy, ooh, and crisp. This is a fabulous idea.
0: How do you you get a better gig than that?
1: Is this what I want to do with the rest of my life?
0: This is Uncorking a Story with your host, Michael Carlin. It's delicious. So welcome to the first ever Winecast, Dave Dwyer. This is a fabulous idea. Now, what do you what do you like about drinking drink? yeah. Sauvignon Blanc while uh, chatting with the folk? What could be better? <laughs> I like it. I mean, this is I mean, they pay us to do this. <laughs> how do you how do you get a better gig than that? My Ma- wife is going to ask me what I did at work today, and I'm going to have to tell yeah. her. Now, may, may I join you? May I sample? <laughs> I, I, have, I have
1: withheld. It is a. Tell me again the uh, the varietal, etc.
0: It is a Sauvignon Blanc from Napa Valley. Mm. From Napa mm. Valley. Mm, delicious. Yeah. Oh, I like citrusy. Ooh, and crisp. And crisp. Very mm. citrusy and crisp well, uh, and, a, yet, and yet it's not too
1: well i'm well, gonna try a little more mm, mm-hmm.
0: i like it well i'm glad i'm glad it meets good our choice. guests yes yes wendy picked it out
2: it's my favorite so I'm blanc <laughs> oh really mm,
0: mm-hmm. so i have a question for you as you study that bottle uh, mr dwyer uh you're a radio host these days I am. What and so very rarely do I get a nice bottle of wine while I'm <laughs> hosting a radio show. <laughs> so this will be a different a little role reversal for you because you will be answering versus asking the question. This is true. This is true. This is, I'm looking forward to it. Well, we're looking forward to, uh, to having you here. And I mean, now that I mean, you are, you're a radio host, when did you figure out that you had a knack for radio?
1: Well, we've, um, in looking back on life and digging up some old cassette tapes from my childhood, we've discovered that. I'm gonna have to go with first grade on that one, Mike.
0: <laughs> first grade, and I mean, how first did you grade. how did you discover it? When did you? When, you know, what what did you like about well, radio or, or recording your voice? My
1: friend across the street, Greg, had one of these cassette tape recorders where you press or you press the play and the record button at the same time, and it all of a sudden starts recording your voice. And instead of being on the football team, which neither of us were particularly (laughs) gifted with, or whatever else one might do after-school, after-school activities, this was our after-school activity. This was, I would say... Mike, I'm, I predate you a little bit. So this is the, in the 70s, the mid-70s, where before, I think parents were really scheduling their kids every moment after school. We just had free time, so we're like, oh, let's press play and record. And I don't know, maybe because we had seen things on TV or heard things on the radio, it's like, well, let's imitate that. That looks like fun. Let's do that. And so we were fake news announcers or game show hosts or that sort of thing.
0: Now, when you grew up and, and you went to college, you went to... I did. I went to Syracuse University to study communications. And was was being a radio host in, in your consideration set as a career, or were you looking for something more general in communications? I mean, I chose,
1: I chose the major of television, radio, film, production, so the actual doing, because there were other people that were majoring in, like, I want to be president of Viacom someday, or, you know, so that really you learn how to be a businessman, There's some stuff about communications. But I, I knew I wanted to do you know be, be behind the scenes and in high school i went into the folks that do the, the plays the musicals and the shows and said i want to be the guy backstage like raising the curtain and you know cueing the lights and all that and they're like yeah but we don't have enough guys on stage could you could you just go out there and be a... so then i was like acting and doing that too so it was all it was all in there first and when i got to syracuse I'm like well i guess i want to do a lot of this i want to do a, like tv production and
0: maybe radio if i want to so what was your first experience on stage like Oh, that's
1: interesting. Uh, well, I, I figured out early on that I was not a singer. So like, you know, the people on Glee that stand in the <laughs> background, but they're not the ones uh, doing the numbers. They're just there for humor. I was th- those people.
0: <laughs> you were the comedic I, uh, break. The, yeah,
1: either spirit carrier. Or the comedic break that didn't actually have to sing a song in a musical—that was me.
2: Did you have a favorite radio show you used to listen to way back when you were making your own recording?
1: I loved—I uh, mean, probably not when I was that young in first grade, but I mean, I've always really just loved radio. I like music radio. Certainly, in the '70s and '80s was the the, the real peak, I would say, of, you know, contemporary hit radio with all the the morning zoos and the, hey, good morning to you, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, certainly, you know, you can harken back to earlier than that, the 50s and 60s. And Cousin Brucey, who now works at Sirius XM that I see all the time, was a real classic New York face, but he interviewed, he was like the Dick Clark, you know, interviewing all the bands and whatnot. And he would be like, hey, it's Cousin <laughs> and And I still, I mean, I still listen to radio in the morning when I wake up, just, you know, morning radio to play some music and get my blood and going and so i mean i would say that was mm-hmm. that was my favorite radio listening i wasn't a huge talk radio listener i mean as i got older and a little more sophisticated you know you listen to some of the talk radio news or npr that sort of thing but when i was growing up it was definitely music
0: mm-hmm. i noticed on the walk over here kind of walking through i guess you know past rockefeller center avenue of the americas it's actually named cousin brucey way where where is that now i haven't seen that it's not too far from I would say uh, McGraw Hill Building, okay. right around there. Yeah, that's where I work.
1: Yeah, because he, he's there every day. I see him often, and he looks pretty much the same as he
0: did in, like, 1965. <laughs> God bless him. That's either a good thing now or a bad thing back in 1965. <laughs> it's one of those, yeah. <laughs> what, what was your first experience on air? What was the first time you were ever yourself on air on radio?
1: Uh, I was a freshman in college, and at Syracuse, because it's a communication school, they actually had three different radio stations for students. So I picked the one that did you know, contemporary music. Back in the 80s, actually, it was New Wave, what we would now look back and call New Wave, but it was just all the rage back then. Flock of Seagulls? Yeah, that kind of stuff. Flock of Seagulls, you know, Erasure, The Cure that whole genre right there. And, you know, back, yeah, Sting back then, Talking Heads, all that kind of stuff. So they had a radio station that was really, it was run by students but designed to be for people that wanted to get into radio. Not like your typical college radio station where you walk in with albums under your arm and you go, hey, everybody, <laughs> I'm going to put on some discs for you. I mean, this was learning how to do if you wanted to get into radio. This is what you did with your spare time and I did. So I walked in as a freshman and, and I said, I'd like to do that. And I introduced myself to the program director and he said, hey, Dave Wire. That's a great radio name. Don't ever change it.
0: And obviously you never change your name. <laughs> well, I actually did for radio. What was it?
1: Well, because I was on the air one evening and this was two o'clock in the morning because when you're a freshman, that's when you have to start. You have to start at two o'clock in the morning. And I was sitting there and I'm putting on like 45s. We had 45s. to put the needle down, all that old school stuff. And I would say, good morning, Syracuse, it's Dave Dwyer with you. And it just kind of wasn't really rolling off the tongue. But my roommate had given me a nickname when we first started freshman year, and it was Happy Dave (laughs) because I seemed to have a lot of happiness in me. And so at some point during those first couple of months on radio, I transitioned to using Happy Dave as my air name, and that kind of stuck. Because after that, I did the happy, not unlike this, except without the actual bottle of wine, I did the happy hour show from 47 on Friday.
0: In, well, I have to imagine in some recording studios or, or record uh, studios, radio stations around the country, they probably have something different than wine there every now and then, but we don't have to talk about that. <laughs> so, you, so you're at Syracuse, you're doing the overnights, you're a freshman, you're kind of getting into the radio thing, you're, you're now Happy Dave. <laughs> That's right. What happens after graduation? Where do you wind up? What do you do? Well, actually, I mean, I, I
1: spent those few years um, Doing not only radio, but also television production at Syracuse. And really, I enjoyed them both. I directed and produced. I mean, you know, at a class level, I wasn't working at the local NBC TV station or anything like that. But, you know, it was a very hands-on production and learning about the industry and all that. And I really liked Directing television, and I also was on the air pretty much from my freshman year. Eventually, I was doing the morning show uh, in Syracuse five days a week on the morning, which I would never imagine doing today. <laughs> I am not a morning person, but uh, that was fun. And it was kind of I figured it was kind of like my little 15 minutes of fame because in a in a medium-sized market, it was about the, at the time I think it was about the number 50 market in the country for radio, TV in terms of size and whatnot, and, um, and people knew who I was and sort of had that little. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, this was fun. Well, it lasted. But I really, I literally prepared two different resumes when I graduated. One was for radio on air, and one was for television production. And I had these two little reams of, of paper, and I was like, "Well, what, which one should I do?" <laughs> and it just so happened, I got a job working at MTV as uh, as a production assistant when I graduated. So I kind of started barking up the TV tree and figured. C'est la vie. Farewell to those radio days. I had my 15 minutes of fame.
0: Now, what was MTV like in these days? We're thinking mid-'80s here? This was 1985, 1986.
1: 85, I was an intern the summer of my, after my junior year, before my senior year. In 1986, I graduated from college. And this was, I mean, they went on the air in in 81, 80, 1980. And uh, so, I mean, it was, this was the earliest days, the original VJs, which are now actually on Sirius XM, and I see them at the Christmas parties, you know, Mark Goodman and Nina Blackwood, Martha Quinn, Alan Hunter, and J.J. Jackson, God rest his soul. God rest his soul. He's gone home to God. But those original five, they were still working there when I started there. And it was still very much, I mean, people that tune into MTV now probably can't even imagine what it was like in the 80s it was actually like a radio station playing music and the vjs would intro the and here's our next video from City lopper girls just want to have fun <laughs> and, and it, I mean, it was fun it was a startup it was a very young company it was a new thing that nobody had tried but it was also by then even only five years in they had realized how much impact they were having on the culture and the music business so it wasn't quite the huge corporate conglomerate and network power that it is today. But they were starting to realize we this is something we got here and we, people are really uh, accepting the role of being able to influence the c- culture, certainly the music business.
0: So were you part of that shift at MTV You know, kind of going away from music videos to something else, more entertainment oriented programming?
1: Uh, I was. In fact, my first job was in what they called, at the time, they called special programming, which was everything other than Music videos and VJ segments, which it now is entirely. So uh, yeah, really. I mean, that was the germ. We did maybe one special. We do like what we call rockumentaries. Which you like documentaries about <laughs> rock and roll? Yeah, rockumentaries. So we did those, and we did like the spring break coverage where everybody's like down there and screaming at the camera and all that. So I worked on all that, and then yet yeah, yes, later it did grow into a lot more non-music programming. But yeah, that was that was kind of the beginning of it, the '86 to '90 when I was there.
0: And then after MTV, where where did you wind up? Um, they both the two
1: major uh, entertainment companies at the time, Time Warner and Viacom, both had their hand in starting a cable comedy channel, because as they referred to it at the time, comedy was the rock and roll of the eighties. It was just like this is the the place to be. This is the new growing business in entertainment, and. Uh, Time Warner, which owns HBO, uh, uh, started up what was called the Comedy Channel, and Viacom owned MTV and started up what was called Ha, the TV Comedy Network. And they both launched within about a month of each other, both had different formats, but essentially comedy programming all the time, and they were losing so much money after a year that they merged into one, and this was quite something, because it was very rival companies that swore they would never enter into a merger, and they did. And that's when Comedy Central was born. So I... I worked there directing uh, a, a show that was kind of like a David Letterman on a smaller scale, a late night talk show. We didn't have a studio audience. We had what we called an audience of one. <laughs> it would be someone who watched the show who wrote in and said, yes, I'd like to come in. And they sat in the studio audience in... Uh, like a pair of theater chairs, the little crushed red velvet. And we put a little rope in front of them and had a camera for them and all that. But they were just the audience of one. They would sit there, you know, kind of like, "Hey, yeah, yeah, that was good. That was funny.
0: Like the two old guys in the Muppets. Is that right? Not unlike that. <laughs> Except they were not encouraged to be
1: as critical and uh, chime in when they wanted. They, it was when we addressed them and whatnot. But the host of the show was named Alan Havey. And he's since gone on to do some, uh, some stuff in movies. And he still does stand-up comedy, sort of the big venues like college campuses and things like that, and did some radio and in California. But for 3 years I directed that show like a television director with the cameras and you know guests coming in and comedy bits and all that sort of thing. And that was great fun. It was really one of the most fun times I had in in my career. And and I was 25 years old when I started that, so that was that was You know, kind of a feather in the cap.
0: I would imagine that you met some pretty interesting people. You know, famous people whose careers might be flourishing now. Any anyone come to mind who you may have interacted with? Oh, sure.
1: Oh my gosh, yes. There was uh, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, right? Literally when. It was called The Seinfeld Chronicles when it premiered on NBC, and they did like a six-episode trial run. And when he was promoting that, he came on our show. And I certainly knew him as, as a comedian, but he was not the Jerry Seinfeld that we came to know in the 90s. So this was in the very early 90s. And, you know, one of my... Probably up there was meeting Captain Kirk. Mr. William Shatner? Yeah, Mr. Oh. William Shatner, yes. That, that was, uh, he was a guest on the show. And was he nice to you? He was. He was very nice. In his sort of sardonic way, of course. <laughs> but uh, as a director... Uh, a celebrity guest that I remember coming on the show that I won't forget was Chuck Norris because before we did the show, he was wanted to set up a camera shot where he would do one of his famous sort of karate kicks right into the camera, and he was sort of explaining it to me so that I could block the cameras, and I was standing about, you know, five feet away from him, and he said, well, it'll be something like this, and he was wearing jeans that were fairly tight <laughs> jeans, and he did a high kick that... Stopped about an inch and a half from my nose and I was like Chuck Norris just almost knocked me out
0: I think I think you want to be very careful with what you say about Chuck Norris because he doesn't sleep he waits <laughs> <laughs> and if he wanted to hit your nose he would have he would have hit your that, nose that's if why he wanted he, he's to. skilled he's very skilled <laughs> he's got great skills we don't talk bad about Chuck Norris mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're at Comedy Central and you've done your MTV thing right to your career happiness at that point in time Uh, My career happiness, I
1: would say happy. Uh, I loved doing the show every day. It was something new every day. It was live to tape, so it is kind of like one of the, you know, Letterman or Jay Leno or one of those shows. Um, It was great fun. I mean, I had certainly a fair amount of accomplishment for a, a young lad in the television industry. And then the show was canceled. And I stayed on working with them for a little while, but then they're like, well don't really have a show for you to direct, so... And started freelancing for a while and freelanced for, um, for MTV back, back at the VJ studios and got to meet the, the second round of, like, the Adam Currys. Adam Curry. And Julie Brown. Remember downtown Julie Brown? Wubba, wubba, wubba. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Duff, Hilary Duff, and uh, a young guy named Jonathan something. With long Winters. Hair. Oh, no. Listen to you dating yourself. You're not that old. Jonathan Winters. That was my dad's favorite comedian was Jonathan Winters. He would do all those voices and whatnot. So I went back uh, to MTV. They said, you know, they say you can never go home again, but I did. Uh, Particularly since my departure for HBO, a lot of people had left um, in 1989 when I left to go work for a comedy channel at the time, um, were leaving MTV to go to this startup, and there was a little kind of bad blood between the two companies, and I was... I think, the 11th or 12th person to kind of defect. And by that time, th- they were not so happy with that. And uh, and so I didn't know if I could go home again. But the same guy that was there, <laughs> the same senior vice president said, oh, yeah, come on back. or oh, hard feelings and whatnot. So I worked at uh, MTV for a little while. But at that point, I would say career satisfaction was okay. But I, I think I thought that mm, maybe there's something more. Is this really... I wasn't saying, is this all there is, but the kind of stuff that I was really enjoying in, in my, my time away from work started to make me think, you know, is this what I want to do with the rest of my life?
0: Stars of the 80s, the comedians, and you're going home night after night and doing what? <laughs> uh, praying in church. Praying in church. Yeah. That does not, Wendy, does that seem
2: like something? That does, something? Not, <laughs> seem like does not seem like a match at It does not
0: seem like a and, match. And here you are in Denver, Colorado, World Youth Day. Right. And you decide what? I decide
1: that I hear a calling from God and that I should um, continue with what I've been doing in my off hours, maybe with my entire life. So I begin at that point pursuing, discerning what it might be like to follow a call to the priesthood with my life. I mean, I didn't come home right then and instantly get ordained. It takes longer than that. But I did start a process of really praying about and asking friends and other people that had made similar decisions about, you know, is this what I should do with my life? And in less than a year, I entered into a novitiate, which is the first year of, uh, um, you know, sort of the seminary track for ordination to Catholic priesthood.
0: That is a mouthful. Yes. Now— You are a—what type of priest are you these days? I am the
1: type who is still a happy Dave, uh, type that does radio, but I belong to a religious community called the Paulist Fathers, so many people listening might have heard of, like, the Jesuits. They're pretty famous because they run a lot of universities and things like that. People might have been to— Places called Gonzaga or Ignatius or Loyola. Uh, the Jesuits are a huge religious community. The one that I joined is fairly small and based here in the United States, and we're called the Paulist Fathers. And uh, I was ordained a priest in the year 2000. So after about six or seven years of preparation and seminary training and doing like an internship year. I continued to discern that in fact that is what God wanted me to do with my, my whole life. Not just when I got home from work, but with all of my time.
0: So you say a Paulist father, not to be confused with Paula's father.
1: Paula's father. No, I, I do not have any daughters named Paula, although when we first started doing the radio show on Sirius XM, the announcer would say, now here's Paula's father, Dave Dwyer, and people would call him go, who's Paula? D- do you have a daughter? <laughs> she, she really? So no, I'm not Paula's father.
0: Technically against the rules. That is true. But so what does it mean to be a Paulist priest? I mean, you talk about, you know, the Jesuits are out there, there's Paulists. there's parish priests. What makes a Paulist different from the other ones that we just mentioned?
1: Well, uh, there are myriad, but probably the one that is appropriate for our conversation is that we have always, since our inception in the late 19th century, used forms of communications, public communications, media, to spread the word, to do what... Jesus' apostles and even St. Paul back in his day in the very first century did in terms of getting the word out about our faith and about our religion. St. Paul wrote letters on parchment from prison. Father Hecker, our founder in the late 19th century, used the printing press to develop one of the first Catholic magazines in the United States. And since then, we've had, in fact, uh, where we're sitting right now was one of the very first first radio stations in the United States here in New York City. And the little studio that we're in was run by the Pauls' fathers, and we had an AM radio station called WLWL, and they had Catholic programming on there, uh, you know, pretty much 24 hours a day. And so that was that was 1931. In 1960s, we uh, created a, a production company in Hollywood where we've done some feature films and some television. And in 2006, I went on the air at Sirius XM Satellite Radio and do a radio show five nights a week. So we've always been involved in various forms of media. I think that's one of the things that marks our our uniqueness as the Paulists.
0: Now, Wendy, you're going to make fun of me because you know of my aff- uh, affinity towards the Hallmark Hall of Fame.
2: I do. It's really quite entertaining. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> what yeah. is the Hall of Fame or his affinity it's his for affinity it? affinity for <laughs> it. Yeah, and yeah. we talked about it on the walk over mm-hmm. here. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Paulist Productions had a Hallmark Hall of Fame movie not too long ago. Is that right?
1: In fact, it was last Valentine's Day, their highest rated, rated Hall, Hallmark Hall of Fame in about five years, starring Betty White. It was called The Lost Valentine.
0: The Lost
2: Valentine. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. Yeah.
1: It tugs at the heartstrings one. It day.
2: does, it does. <laughs> and
1: and that one did. Even some of my brother Paul's priests, who, you know, are not known to be sappy, were getting a little teary, wiping the eyes at that one.
2: Well, You've got to love Betty White too. <laughs> How can she you not great.
0: love Betty? I mean, she talk about a career resurgence, mm-hmm. Betty White, mm-hmm. a golden girl. She's very loved. She's one of, she's <laughs> one of three left. Um, so the Paulus fathers—they have uh, a sort of a heritage around communication. Yes, I would say that's a good way to put it. Tell us a little bit about this busted halo thing of which you are a part. Yes, I'm the
1: director of Busted Halo Ministries, which uh, has a lot of different arms and ways in which we reach out, but our goal is to connect with young adults, those in their 20s and 30s, because we see see by statistics and research that is done all the time by church organizations and sort of uh, objective organizations outside the Catholic Church that say that people of the Gen X and millennial generation are not, and this is not a surprise probably to many people listening, are not participating in... Religious institutions, or really any institutions, in the same way that generations past have. And so the Paulist father said, Boy, this is a, a huge gap in people that are connecting with our faith. We got to do something specifically that will reach out to these young people. So in the year 2000, they asked one of my predecessors, a Paulist priest, and a couple of lay people to get together and figure out how to reach. Young people, and we're not talking about teens that are still living at home and sort of have to go to youth group when mom and dad say you should go to youth group, it's great, which is obviously a wonderful outreach of the church. But we're talking about that much more elusive group that once they're out from under the thumb of mom and dad and choose to do what they want, many choose not to participate in institutional religion as we see by the surveys and whatnot. And so, the Paul's father said, Let's figure out a way to reach them, to reconnect them with their faith, their Catholic identity, etc. And the folks who were beginning this Busted Halo from the very beginning first came up with a name, and they did folks groups on a lot of different cool names, and it was one of the young adults that came up with the name Busted Halo. And they decided to have a website, because in the year 2000, hey, that was, that was the thing. Soon after that, a few years after that, when I got involved, we started a podcast that we do out of the studio that we're sitting in today called the Busted Halo Cast, not as cool a name, as uncorking the truth, or winecast, which is really cool, I have to say.
0: I doubt you were drinking wine while you were doing those casts. <laughs> we were not. That would not have been uh,
1: probably something we should report to the uh, higher ups. <laughs> that's, uh, that, that's how we invented the podcast.
0: <laughs> it's interesting because here you have you know a group of people who's kind of notorious, notoriously hard to find. Mm-hmm. It's hard to find young adults. Whether you're doing it on behalf of the church or doing it on behalf of you know a network television station, you're having a hard you have a hard time. They're not in any one place anymore. So how does busted halo? Crack that nut. How does Busted Halo find these people and get a message to them that they may or may not want to be receptive to? By
1: being in places where they are and a speaking and speaking a language that they're familiar with, because the, rece- the receptivity, as you're saying, we can't guarantee, but some of the humps we can overcome that the church often gets tripped up by is they. we tend to, certainly in the Catholic church, we tend to find it most easy to talk to people that are already inside the doors. And while the church has certainly dabbled in social networking and electronic media and a lot of parishes have a website that oftentimes has, like, outdated information and hopefully the mass times are correct and all that, I would say, you know, like everything else over the course of 2,000 years, the church uh, goes at things rather slowly with, you know, with caution or what have you. Uh, and so we're real good at, at uh, in many, many cases, we're good at preaching to the choir, if you will, the people that are already there. Uh, and so, and the other hump, I would say, that we attempt to overcome is by speaking not an exclusively churchy language which, with lots of jargon. If you go to church, you hear things like, you know, salvation and redemption and words that you don't typically— use when you're walking around at the mall or at your job or whatnot. So we see ourselves kind of as translators, not just literally for language, but in a lot of other ways, cultural translators, between the culture and language of the church, which in some ways is pretty ancient, and we're using Latin in some cases, but maybe even archaic forms of English, but also just concepts. Like truth, you know, ultimate truth, as opposed to a generation that's reared on pretty much relativism, like the, the subjectivity of this is my experience and don't tell me you know, how to think about something. So acting as translators and a bridge, while still being able to speak the language of pop culture, speak, speak a language that is a little more accessible, or at least explain, the kind of jargon that we're using. If I use a word like liturgy, I'll say, and by that we mean when we go to mass. That's kind of a fancy churchy word for mass. Whereas many other times in the church, just like any other organization or group or club, you tend to have your own kind of inside baseball jargon. And people that are not familiar with it are kind of like, huh? And if they're really interested, then they'll want to join the club and say, I really want to know what that word means. If they're less interested, they'll probably be off put by it. And so we try to Bridge those gaps by, A, reaching young adults where they are by using media like podcasts and social networking, and B, by speaking a language that they understand and, and acting as a translator or a bridge.
2: So once you actually reach them, how do you keep them engaged in Broken Halo? What are some of the things that you Busted do? Halo, you say, Busted, Busted Halo, please. Excuse me, Busted Halo.
1: That's a whole different website <laughs> that you Halo. don't want to go to. <laughs> Another
2: mm-hmm. rookie <breaking> mistake. <laughs>
1: Bustedhalo.com. Um, how we keep them there, I mean, that, that's kind of one of those things where we got to be confident in the content, the voice, the the fact that there are other young adults who are the authors of articles and bloggers and those that are contributing to the podcast and the media. And also, I mean, I would say as a Catholic priest, I have to be confident in what, you know, the message that we have, the deposit of faith that we have for 2,000 years is something worth listening to and paying attention Mm -hmm. to. So we do it in a way that, you know, yeah, you do kind of have to hook them in, but you pray and you hope that once they're there, they realize, hey, you know, this isn't what I thought it was, or it's not so bad, or it's not the same thing that I read in the, you know, the newspapers about the Catholic Church, or hey, I remember a little bit about this when I was growing up, and it gives me a sense of home. A lot of it is out of our control, but I would say making sure that at least the production quality of the content is up to a par that young people are used to. So a lot of times the church will attempt to do something in this realm of media or entertainment or electronics, and it'll look like, oh, it's like that film strip from first grade when I went to Catholic school. Don't they realize that people don't use those anymore? So if people, young people show up and the experience is not what they're used to, then that's going to be an instant turnoff. So we, again, we try to eliminate as many of those humps as we can. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I think, Wendy, we got to rely on the fact that the real meat and the real content is eternal truths that, you know, it's, it's God's responsible for touching their soul or mm-hmm. their spirit.
0: So I think this is an interesting bridge between our, our two worlds here because Wendy and I are tasked with with giving clients advice on right. anything from what to do with packaging to what consumers they should target to how they should say what they need to say. One of the things that we always tell clients is, you know, when, when they are looking to stand out more or to reach an audience, understand the conventions of the category that they play in and break the ones that you feel comfortable breaking. Challenge the assumptions of the category. It seems to me that there are some ways in which Busted Halo does that.
1: Mm-hmm. Challenging the assumptions of, let's say, the... Church?
0: No, no, I wouldn't say the assumptions of the church, but, but the conventions of the category. So if you think of Catholic media, sure, you might think of, hello. <laughs> we have a guest here today. Yes and his name is Dave. Hi, Dave. How are you?: <laughs> Hi. It's, you know, you might think that it's not very dynamic, yet I listen to Busted Halo and it sounds different.
1: Well, and we get that feedback not only from people that read the website or listen to our podcast or the radio show, but people that interact with us in a lot of ways that say, gee, I didn't expect this, whatever that means, this message, this voice, to be coming from the Catholic Church. Hmm. So I think you're right. We are, in that sense, challenging the assumptions without and it's you know it's a delicate one line to walk but without you know uh, challenging the truth of the church or challenging the hierarchy of the church and saying hey we're Catholics but boy those bishops are for uh, for not uh, just just today in the catholic news uh, one of the presidential candidates Rick Santorum and remember we weren't going to talk about it. now we're doing all three we're on number 2 yeah. Yeah, we're on number 2 Rick Santorum uh, who is catholic he said uh, he said you know those bishops are wrong about it. well okay you know we're a catholic entity that doesn't come out and say bishops are wrong about but i think the way you've described it is accurate we challenge what people presume will be a way in which we approach what we would say are eternal truths, that that I'm not, you know, it's not my job to change or reinterpret or come up with new theology, but it is my job to come up with perhaps contemporary ways. Our founder of the Paul's father's father, Isaac Hecker, who's now on track for sainthood, so we call him servant of God, Isaac Hecker, the phrase that he used was old truths in new forms, and so my job is finding the forms that resonate with today's culture, but the truths don't change.
0: So I imagine that when you take kind of a different tone, so you're not, you're not teaching something that's inherently different, but when you're taking a different tone and a different approach, you may have one or two critics out there who are just not comfortable with something that new or that different sounding from the church. Have you come across a couple of critics in in your day? Sure. I mean, there, there <laughs> when we first launched uh, the Catholic
1: Channel on Sirius XM, which is uh, Channel 129, if you have, uh, in your rent-a-car or wherever, uh, in your regular car, um, when we first launched the Catholic Channel, there would be people that, you know, not, not to pass judgment, but sounded on the phone of an older generation that would call in and say, all I hear is laughing. What? This is the Catholic. It's supposed to be serious and somber. And... And yes, so we have had that experience, like, hey, there's nothing funny about this. And you'll certainly see plenty of examples of not only the Catholic Church, but um, other religious media where it's always about being on the attack. It's about being on the attack of the evil culture or, you know, the flesh of the world. And even St. Paul, back in the day, did some of that dichotomy between, you know, us as believers and the world that's out there. But he did that for a rhetorical purpose. It's not an inherent theology that we have that those who are believers need to separate themselves from the world. In fact, uh, we mentioned the Jesuits before, and the founder of the Jesuits, St. Ignatius, you know, gave, the, gave us this great gift in Catholic theology that God is in all things. And so it's up to us to realize that. So even when there's bad stuff going on in the world and you turn on the evening news and it's like, oh boy, people are getting killed and there's natural disasters, or you see this rap music or these video games that are just darn evil, God is there. That doesn't mean that God condones evil video games or God smokes people with hurricanes, but it doesn't mean that God is present. And so we invite people to try to put on the the glasses that allows us to see the world through the eyes of faith and not just say, here's everything that's good and it only exists in the church and all that other stuff is bad, where you you do tend to hear a good amount of Catholic or other Christian media or personalities just really kind of going against the culture. And so we do get critics of people saying, you know, how can you be talking about TV programs where, you know, there's like a, a gay character, or how can you be talking about rap music when people kill each other and, or these video games? It's like, well, because if we don't, and this goes back to your other question, because if we don't reference or engage all of the culture that particularly young adults, it is the soup that they're swimming in, we completely lose credibility. If we only talk about encyclicals from the Pope, then they don't want to hear that. Mm-hmm. And not, not that they can and this goes back to your uh, question, Wendy, they will be open to hearing about an encyclical from the Pope, if we talk about a sitcom that has a gay character, or if we talk about video games that have violence in them. Not that we say they're wonderful or great, but we at least bring them into the conversation and don't put these blinders on that pretends that the world is not there. We can't do that, or we completely lose credibility with the audience.
2: So what are some of the good metaphors that you've used in terms of being able to communicate to your audience in that fashion?
1: Metaphors.
2: Like you mentioned some TV shows. What have you found that really sticks and works with the young target that you're looking at?
1: I mean, essentially, one of the ways in which we approach this is, as we are talking about with St. Ignatius, that God is everywhere. On the radio show, uh, uh, every Thursday, we invite people to call in and think of something from the pop culture, whether it's a television show, a film, a song that is not explicitly religious or Christian, that is maybe a heavy metal song or a movie that's not, you know, starring Christian characters. And we call that Faith in Culture Thursday, that we can find our faith even in the secular culture. And it's amazing. I mean, it still amazes us. Every Thursday when somebody will call in with a song, I never would have thought that there was a spiritual dimension or a silver lining or a th- something that's inspired them. And I'll, and I'll say to myself, my goodness, this really does work, and people thank us because they say, I'm driving down the road, I hear a song and I think, now what's the spiritual take on that? That's how we're supposed to be living in the world as believers, not saying, oh, don't look at all those magazines at the supermarket checkout, don't listen to all those radio stations. Now, obviously, there's a line where we can, you know, take in, I mean, there's certainly a... a, parts of Scripture in our tradition that say, you know, the eye brings into the soul, you know, stuff that is good and stuff that is bad, and what we're feasting on is going to form us. So obviously there's a balance that we need to strike, but I think unfortunately many times the church or other religious media will not even try to find a balance and say just listen to Catholic radio or just watch movies that are about— you know, nuns that triumph on basketball teams, which are wonderful. But, I mean, that's just so unrealistic an expectation for most of people, not just young adults, that there has to be a way to to find a balance. And the the other end of the scale is, of course, is, of course, also wrong. If you never feed your mind and your soul with something uplifting or edifying or that is in line with your beliefs and only watch R-rated movies and play violent video games, okay, well, that's not what we're talking about. But the balance is what's tough, and you're right, Mike, that there are those that would say, okay, that's too hard, so let's just focus on this end of the scale. And you guys that are trying to find that balance, it's way too easy for you to step your foot in something that ain't good.
0: So I'm sure you get a lot of calls and suggestions with very you know, things you would expect. Maybe somebody calls in with a Michael W. Smith piece or something sure, like that. Sure, Any, Anything come to mind that, you know, you and, and others in the studio may have just been scratching your heads saying, how are they going to make a connection between Faith and, and this song? Oh, sure. I mean, when people call with, like, Black Sabbath, you know, Ozzy, and it's like, wow, this is the guy that eats bats, and, you know, he's
1: got the satanic symbols. They probably. taste like chicken, by the yeah.
2: way.
1: <laughs> They're very, very good. And, and somehow people make the connection. And sometimes it's not necessarily, wow, look in this lyric and see how really it's about God. For some people, it's, I was at a point in my life where I was down in the dumps, and I felt like what that song is describing, but God reached his hand and pulled me up out of that. So when I hear that song, I don't, you know, uphold what it is they're singing about, but I think of God acting in my life. So sometimes it has nothing to do with, you know, like those high school film criticism classes where everybody looks into Hitchcock and sees, you know, the, the crooked mirror in the background and, you know, thinks that he spent years trying to figure out exactly what the symbolism is of that. Well, I don't know how much of that is actually the case. So it's not necessarily reading into an artist's, Secret ulterior motive like the Da Vinci Code, but it is people's genuine experience of whatever pop culture thing Whatever movie or TV show or song and saying this is why this inspires me or this is why this reminds me of my faith Maybe because it's the complete opposite of what I believe
0: Da Vinci (laughs) (laughs) now you know i think you know in marketing semantics is everything words are everything you know you talk about reaching like for instance crisp crisp what were some of the other word what were some of the other words well by the way i have to say something you you, you made a freudian slip before what did i say the word wine came in and you were saying something else and i'm gonna have to rewind and figure it out wine Mm. wine you said wine instead of something else but I digress. I don't think that's a Freudian slip. I think that's because of the salve blanc. <laughs> it could be because of this tasty beverage in front of us. But you, know, you talk about young adults, but you call them spiritual seekers mm-hmm. instead of saying Catholics. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Why the choice of spiritual seekers? That, that's more of
1: a self-identification. Uh, the, those that do these kind of national and interna- international studies of religious practice that do it not from any—they're you know, not, like, hired by the Catholic Church. They kind of do it— as research and anthropological organizations, sociological organizations, they ask people to kind of self-identify. You know, you just kind of call 10,000 random people of various ages and say, when was the last time you went to church, and what would you call yourself? And whereas in comparison to generations past where people would— You know, on the intake form at the hospital, they'd check Catholic, but then they'd probably feel guilty. Gee, I haven't been to church in a while, or even those folks that say, Well, I'm Catholic, but boy, the church would fall down if I ever, you know, walked in it again because I'm such a bad sinner. That is very different from not checking the box that is Catholic, even if you were baptized and raised Catholic, uh, which is what This millennial generation is doing more and more, more even than the Gen Xers, more than the baby boomers. It's increasing almost logarithmically to where they're not self-identifying as Catholic. And they're calling themselves, this is is a term that we use, it's a self-identification, that they say, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Yeah, I believe in God. And still, when you do surveys all the time, in America, something like 98% of people believe in God and say they pray. So 98% of people are in that category, but... I'm spiritual, but not religious, for whatever reasons. There's a lot of people, there are a lot of reasons that people make that distinction. Not the least of which is, I don't identify with this institution, or I've seen bad things happening in that institution. Certainly, the Catholic Church has had its fair share of not just bad press, but indeed horrible things that have been happening. That one might scratch their head and say, "Why should I be a part of that group?" When there's, you know, when there's evil, when there's sin. But not just that. In fact, it's very interesting when you re- research the. The millennial generation, those that are born after 1980, the sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic Church is nowhere near the top of their list of why they don't identify as Catholic. So it's more things about the relevance to their lives and um, more things like sort of post, um, post-Christian intellectualism, that sort of thing. Well, it's kind of believing in a God that, you know, is sort of involved in us. You see a lot of uh, chaos, natural disaster in the world. But really, much more so, it's that it's that the turn to the subject that began in the 60s in terms of sociology, that it was all now, instead of being about the group or being about my tribe or being about my country, it's my own experience of the world. And that began in earnest in the 1960s. So when we've got people born in 1980, that's all they've ever lived when, lived in. And so it's not... I need to experience God, job, love life, whatever, on my own terms, and nobody else can tell me how to do that. And that's not a... I'm not saying that pejoratively or an overgeneralization. I mean, this is just, you know, overwhelmingly what's been found by sociologists. And so if you've got that situation, well, then this 2,000-year-old institution that is made up and their leadership is largely of people that don't look like me and act like me or talk like me, well, then why would I connect with that? Oh, sure, I believe in God, and I want to find spiritual enlightenment, but this institution, I don't, I don't find that relevant or I don't connect with that.
0: So, so they say it. So here's a big question. So, you know, what what are then the issues that young spiritual seekers are looking for today, and how does Busted Halo position itself to address those issues?
1: I think they're looking for just what they're describing. They are looking to connect with their spirituality. So we say that our mission is to first kind of connect with them. So that's what we talked about a few minutes ago. Well, we got to be where they are. we got to be talking about their, their language. So whatever that is. Um, you know, movies come to mind where you've got the overly hip youth minister where he's wearing sneakers. And what was the movie with Macaulay Culkin, Saved? Great movie, by the he way. He was in a wheelchair in that he movie. Was in, he that was movie? in a wheelchair, and uh, Brittany something Murphy. Brittany Murphy, right? And the guy who played the uh, the school principal uh, was this Christian hip, but he's you know it turns out he's having an affair, and he's got a dark side. With the mom, right? With right, the mom, Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, but he's like trying to be super cool, and he's like Jesus is in the his house, and all this sort of thing. And th- there's a notion, particularly with youth and young adult ministry, that. You can try too hard, and you can really, well, let's try to hook them in. But I think being genuine and being relevant are the two things that we find are most successful. So relevant being that, okay, once we're talking their language, you know, what is it that is relevant to your life? A lot of times people will ask me in an interview how do you make the church relevant for today's young people? And I said, well, I don't need to make it relevant. I need to kind of show them that, in fact, it is. Because if you're talking about something that permeates all of your being, well, then, of course, it's relevant to where you shop, (laughs) who your employer is, what you do during your day, the ethical choices that you make, large and small, throughout your workday. Of course it's relevant. But because unlike our parents' and grandparents' generation, the young people were not steeped in this— it's very much sometimes a learning experience. It's it's an eye opener. I mean, I was raised in the Catholic Church in the 70s, and our catechism, our Sunday school class, was not like memorizing doctrine or answering questions. It was just like God loves you. Let's you know cut out little felt. Did you color things some pictures? The Holy Spirit, colored pictures, cut out felt things. You know, so I mean, I know that that's what. And you know, we can point fingers and say who, where the blame is, but that's where this generation has been raised. So our task now is to say, okay, now that you're thinking intelligent young adults, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what it is we really believe. And no, we don't, in contrast to what either other religions say or what the media say, believe this, this, or that, this is what we really believe. And does that make sense to you? And when people say yes, and the light bulb goes on, they go, well, maybe it's not so bad that I identify myself as a Catholic. So first, connecting with their spirituality, then making that spiritual connection to something that's relevant within our Catholic tradition And from there, you know, hopefully it unfolds and people grow a little tighter to their Catholic identity. So I think the identity is key, because if you're not checking the box that says Catholic, then you're in a whole other category than what many of our— older generation presume because they say, oh, you know, when I was in college, I didn't go to church, but look, I came back. and I." Re-. But the statistics, statistics are showing that's not happening with the younger generations. So it's not just an age thing. It is actually different for this generation. So to say that, oh, you know, they'll come back when they get married or baptize their kids, they're not. So to make that connection that this is relevant to your life is,
0: is key. So I hate to boil things down so simplistically, but, Wendy, it sounds like—and you tell me what you think. I mean, you're, you're a marketing expert, um, as I also claim to be, um, and we can claim anything, can't we? But, um, you know, making in, in simplistic terms, it's, it's not changing the core of what the brand is. And I don't mean to, to marginalize the Catholic Church as a brand, but it's not changing the core— uh, but it's talking in a more relevant tone, knowing the audience and talking in a more relevant tone.
2: I was going to say it's the way you say it, and it's how you communicate to who you're trying to target and who you're trying to talk to and different ways on how to do that. And it seems like, in your case, you've used your background in comedy and your confidence in communications to really go out there and try and reach people. Mm-hmm. So I would
0: concur. So it's come full circle from the, yes. from the freshman overnights to uh, now doing what, Monday through Friday? Or you
1: from per- 7 to 10? First grade with a tape recorder. I <laughs> well, mean,
0: I, I mean, I really can't <laughs> believe when I look back that, that
1: I would certainly say that God has had a plan for my life all along, that, that I thought I would never do radio again. Once I had those two resumes and I chose you know, a TV production, I figured, well, okay, this one is now part of my past, and somehow came back around. God said, no, 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 I was putting these puzzle
0: pieces together all along. You just uh, follow my lead. So I know we're running a little long on time here. Do you have time for a couple of questions from listeners? If we maybe fill up my glass. We could fill the glass, Wendy. We're gonna fill the glass. All right, go for it. And I also
1: brought for you guys a little sampling of some Mm. lovely cannoli that we could share for our
0: last. You know what's funny about the cannolis? What is funny about cannoli? I find nothing funny. Leave the gun, take the cannolis. Can you name the movie, Wendy? I cannot. You cannot, that would be the godfather. Oh, I should've known that one. Leave the gun, take the cannolis. Here's a, we were with a client last week who's allergic to raw egg. Okay. And he got deathly ill by eating a cannoli. Because oh, no. the cream, oh, right. can, you, can you imagine that. deathly ill, death by cannoli? He could can eat cannolis. He could not eat cannolis. Mm. And he, apparently it had mayonnaise in it. And he's deathly allergic to the raw egg that is also an ingredient is in mayonnaise. Mayonnaise is supposed to be in a cannoli? It doesn't sound right at all. Well, you know, there's many different ways of making cannoli mm. cream. Mayonnaise is one mm. of them. Mayonnaise That's is in many, many different types of icing.
2: <laughs> it's a very useful
0: product. It's very versatile. <laughs> it can be very refreshing. Sometimes I bathe in it. That's not true.
2: <laughs> I really hope not.
0: It's a good cure for lice. And and it's all about life Gets love a bubble and bubblegum
2: in your hair. Life <laughs> love.
0: <laughs> That's actually natural. Yeah. Okay. Right, so Uh, random questions here. These questions were not pre-screened. Okay, so these are from other people besides you two. We actually, we said, you know what, if you could ask a question to a (laughs) Catholic priest, what would you ask that Catholic priest? Okie dokie. And these are randomized. The first one is from a gentleman named Conrad B. And he asks, what does a priest do for fun? (laughs) Well, I can tell you what this priest does for fun. And what do you do for fun?
1: I like uh, the sport that I participated in growing up with my dad. He taught me how to ski. Ah. So I like skiing. It's a little pricey for a priest these days because, you know, you've got to ride up the mountain. It's a hundred bucks. It's like going to Disney. So uh, if somebody invites me skiing, that's also good. That's a hint, Wendy. He would (laughs) like us to invite him to go skiing one time. So I like that for fun. And uh, I am also, I would call myself in the amateur category, photographer. So I like to go out with the camera. It's also, it's a nice photography, at least for me, is a nice kind of uh, introverted or solo activity. A lot of my days is is very public and extroverted and talking and all that. So just going with the camera, either around near where I live, or if I go on vacation to find some new little things to take pictures of, that relaxes me. Well, what do you like to take pictures of? I would say... I prefer probably landscapish and flowery things as opposed to like I'm not the guy with the long telephoto lens on the street getting like, you know, people interacting on their cell phones. You're not a paparazzi. I'm not a paparazzi, yeah.
0: I thought you were going to say food. <laughs> uh, that's with
1: my cell phone. Right before I settle into a nice meal, if if the presentation on the plate is good, then we're going to go with the cell phone picture, post it on Facebook. Look at I was going to say, delicious. do you post it on
2: Facebook? Of course.
0: Yeah. Yeah, of okay. course. <laughs> now, can a priest have a Facebook page?
1: Yeah. That's not one of the questions. That's my question. Yeah, it sounded like yours. Uh, not only priest, but I know many that do.
0: <laughs> so that, that was Conrad B. Uh, Todd Conrad. B says Todd B. Are they all related? They are. There, there is a theme <laughs> here. Let's we'll see if you can guess it. Okay. Uh, do you keep in touch with anybody on the comedy scene? Who do you think is funny today?
1: Uh, oh yeah, I have to think of somebody that's. G rated
0: funny because we I'm need dead. the Jeopardy music. <laughs> we need the Jeopardy music. He doesn't want to accuse himself of saying someone like, uh, well, I'm going to say Daniel Tosh on Comedy Central.
1: Uh, and, and the show is certainly not for the young kids because it's uh, occasionally vulgar. I mean, it's on Comedy Central, so it's not like R rated. But um, I think he's just very gifted. I think he could be like a talk show type like a David Letterman. I think he's very funny.
0: I have a bone to pick with Daniel Tosh. Go. I'll tell you what it is. Um, I have a twin brother named Jimmy. Jimmy was actually going to be in radio until he decided that he wanted to become a lawyer. So let's talk about that for a second. But <laughs> Jimmy, his sense of humor is Daniel Tosh. If you could take the, the, the funny side of my brother out, it would be Daniel Tosh. And he could have done that show. So my beef with Daniel Tosh is that... He beat my brother to the show, <laughs> although I should have a beef with my brother because he should have thought of the show before Daniel Tosh, given that we have a couple years on the guy. <laughs> so Daniel Tosh, anyone else come to mind? Uh, funny. Funny. Ha-ha funny. Ha-ha funny.
1: I mean, people I work with are very funny, I think, and very talented. <laughs> do
0: you, wanna, do you, you want to do Brett Sedell,
1: young and up-and-coming comedian, seen him at New York clubs <laughs> and uh, as my sidekick <laughs> on Sirius XM Radio.
0: I actually did see Brett Sedell live. Did you? In uh, the Los Angeles area. Mm-hmm. Quite funny, although his mother probably wouldn't like some of the stuff <laughs> he was saying about.
1: His mother, believe it or not, recently went up on stage and did comedy, opening oh. for him. And how did that go
0: over? I have not heard. <laughs> I would be <laughs> I interested a good to sport. learn. It sounds
2: like a good sport.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here's our third question. So the first was Conrad B., second from Todd B., the third from Dana P. I'm down and out and thinking about robbing a video store with a pellet gun. What should I do, Father Dave? Thinking about robbing a video
1: store with a pellet gun? Video store with a pellet gun. Uh-huh. If this were a serious question, I would say I'm sorry that you're down and out, uh, but please don't rob a video store with a pellet gun. P- for one thing, a pellet gun probably not going to be your most effective robbery implement. Not that I'm all that much of an expert in those, but yeah. So
0: those were our three questions. <laughs> Obviously, these questions were fabricated. <laughs> uh, who's by who's your yeah. yeah, go ahead. The names I'm trying. The to names throw, you said so we have Conrad B. Yes. right. Right? right. We have Todd B. Uh huh. We have Dana P. Okay. okay. These were all actors in a show called Different Strokes.
2: <laughs> I, got this, I got the Dana was the one that got let me in
0: on it. God rest out. her soul, yeah. right? She, her end didn't come too great. And, no. and the world doesn't move to the beat of just <laughs> one. Uh, so, I mean, as we've, uh, we finish up here, so, you, you know, Father Dave, you, you kind of went from a, a point of, you know, having this career in entertainment to more of a vocational calling. Mm-hmm. Any advice to those, you know, who might be sitting in cubicles today or offices today or maybe even unemployed? Thinking that life isn't, you know, going the way they want it to go. Maybe not that, but that there's something greater out there. Any words of advice to those people who? Sure. I mean,
1: to, to to pay attention to that, to listen to that, I mean, what the jargony word we use in the Catholic Church is discernment, which I think is a little bit different than make a decision. It's not just pros and cons. And it's not just, let me ask, you know, my drinking buddy what he thinks or she thinks. Discernment really involves, you know, certainly from our point of view, involves prayer and and trying to divine what God is calling us to. But even extrapolating from that piece of the equation, I would say it's taking in a lot of Uh, Input So people that know you, people that there's usually everybody has at least one person in in their life that they can rely on giving them the straight skinny. Not just saying what they want to hear and to ask that person, hey, you know, I'm really thinking about a life change. What do you think this would be for me? I when I was discerning the priesthood. And I told some people about that, even people that I knew that you're, you're, when you guys said before, does that sound like, you know, something that people would do, go from MTV to the priesthood? I was surprised how many people were not only very supportive, but people that came up to me and said, Psst, you know, come here, look, I carry a little prayer card in my wallet. Like, they had to come out as a Christian to me because in that industry, you know, apparently it just wasn't the thing to advertise. And I know a lot of people are in that. You know, this was 20 years ago. So today, even worse, not just in the entertainment industry, that, you know, wearing your religion on your sleeve, sometimes people worry about advancement or they get in trouble or whatnot. So, I mean, find that person who can be honest with you and ask them what they think. Uh, I would certainly say that in today's world, if if you're talking about Mike, if you're talking about second career folks that might have been, you know, if if you're in your 40s and are thinking, "Boy, uh, there's no way I could ever hop over to a completely different way of life," it is so common now that it's not just young people. Uh, they'll say they, they say that the millennials who are graduating college this year will have not only different jobs, but at least four different careers in their lifetime, meaning completely different walks of life. That's why they get double degrees and they you know get master's degrees and all that kind of thing, because they're hedging their bets. They know they're not just going to be having one job working for IBM and getting the gold watch after 50 years. That's just not the world we live in anymore. So while that is a disadvantage in some ways in terms of loyalty from uh, an employer and people worry about their jobs the reverse is, is a plus, meaning that everybody's jobs are, are in flux. So to say that, mm, I don't know, th- this is a weird time in life to kind of completely start over. Well, you're certainly not the only one doing it. Doing it. So, uh, I mean, I was 30 years old. I, I gave consideration to, boy, you know, is it too late to start something? I know I have to go to seminary for six years and well, Lord, if we're going to do this, let's let's do it now. Um, but I, I obviously, I don't regret it. But it also was not—I mean, I also don't regret those years that I spent in the entertainment industry. And I look now back, and I see that, you know, God had a plan for all that. And that's why I was spending those eight or ten years doing that. So whatever it is that you might be going into, I think very little of it is—, it is goes unused or wasted. So if you do transition to another career, what you've been doing for these years will probably come in handy somehow. So I would say, don't, don't be afraid to go for it.
0: And if another person came up to you and said, you know, Father Dave, you do such a great job at targeting young adults. (laughs) What are some lessons I could learn from you in terms of how to talk to them, how to reach them, et cetera?
1: Yeah. I mean, I've read some a lot of uh, material about even your fortune 500 companies that are essentially going through the same thing with slightly different motivations than, than the Catholic churches, is, which is everybody's having the same problem. I mean, the, this millennial generation, young adults are a different breed. And so the fortune 500s are figuring, how can we best market to them? How can we sell our products to them? And we're thinking, you know, similar, as you said, branding, but uh, how do we kind of connect with that eternal truth? And I think some of the, the consistencies that I've read across all that is that we need to find a way to honor the experience that they've had growing up where, quite frankly, you know, a lot of the world was focused towards them, but making that mesh somehow in the business place. One of the, the anecdotes that I've heard, at least in corporate America, about millennials is that, you know, an entry-level Stock person, secretary type job, thinks that they have the the ability to walk into the CEO's office and say, "Hey, you're running the company wrong," whereas people of three generations ago would not even think of and taking the elevator to the floor where the CEO is. So that's not to say that corporations need to now change what we do and just bow down and and you know kiss up to these young people that are coming in. But we need to realize that that's where they're coming from and figure out. How we make these two worlds mesh and figure out how to build a bridge, which is what we're doing in the church. I don't know how you do that as a as a as a corporation. I don't know how the CEO says, uh, no, this is not you know what you're here for. The, the scene. In, I don't know if you remember the uh, the social network about Zuckerberg and the Facebook, the Facebook, the Facebook movie. Yes. There were twins in that movie as well. If well, I remember Well, when the yes. twins go into the president of Harvard, wasn't it? And they sit in his office and he's like. What are you doing here? Who the heck are you? I don't, sp- I don't take meetings with undergraduates. I spend time fundraising with people that are presidents of industry. Uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of like that. They felt they deserved a hearing from the president of Harvard.
0: Yeah, and if I were that guy, you know what I would say to him, Wendy? What was that? I would say, go row, row, row your boats <laughs> somewhere else. You should be practicing for something You and your Facebooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, final question here, Father Dave. I know your time is valuable. Uh, Busted Halo has been around for 10 years. It has. Right? Uh, Anniversary coming up? Indeed. There must have been some time over the period of those 10 years, and five or so, five plus with you, where you read an email, you talk to a listener, you do something, you engage with the people somehow, and you have a revelation and say, my goodness, this is all worthwhile. I've changed a life or we've changed a life. Any story you could share along those lines? Um,
1: they, they are myriad, and because they come in frequently, thank God, um, I, I typically think of ones that we've heard more lately than others, but oftentimes people will say, in fact, this one I heard just the, maybe two weeks ago from a listener who said, you know what? Uh, I haven't been going to church in a long time. I found your channel. I stumbled on your channel, and this is subscription radio. People have to pay for SiriusXM, um, and they either comes with their car, and they they continue with the subscription after the free trial, or they go out and buy it, or something like that. And a lot of times, the big names are what hook people. So Howard Stern is on there, Opie and Anthony, Oprah Winfrey, uh, Martha Stewart has channels. They got like Eminem as a channel, and all this. So sometimes it's those big names. Somebody uh, called in our show, and said. I just found you guys a couple of weeks ago and I've now changed around my presets and you are ahead of Opie and Anthony and Howard Stern. And I like listening to the Catholic channel and I think I'm thinking about going back to church. Um, and that was, that was as far as we can tell, a fairly young person. Uh, from a little bit of an older demographic, a very moving memory for me is in 2008 when Pope Benedict XVI was visiting the United States. So the Pope comes from Vatican City, comes over here, does some big you know Yankee Stadium-type masses and all that. Myself and, and the other hosts on the Catholic Channel did gavel-to-gavel coverage, as they say. So we were on location in a lot of these places and doing the sort of— Radio commentary that very few of us have ever done. I mean, very few of us were were talk radio hosts at all before doing this. Uh, Some are Catholic clergy or religious. Some are, you know, couples who are married and then raising kids and trying to be good Catholics, and they host a radio show. But none of us had ever done what you might call like play-by-play or color commentary where you're on the scene of something, and it really is very challenging, and, and I'd never done it before, where you're sitting there and you've got 45 minutes while everybody's waiting for the Pope to arrive, and people aren't watching TV. They're listening on the radio. And so to give people a sense of the scene as opposed to just as we're doing right now, we're just chatting, and if people like listen to us, that's that's nice. But it's very different, and none of us really not only had done it before, but weren't sure how we did. And when all the coverage was over, we did coverage for about um, five days while he was here, uh, a woman called in who was elderly, and she said, you know, I just wanted to call in and thank you for your coverage of the papal visit because uh, I'm blind, and you all let me see the glimmer in his eye. And I felt like I was there experiencing it just like anybody else. And And that is completely a gift from the Holy Spirit because I've never done, you know, live on location and, and you know, the, the dew of the grass in front of the shrine is glistening as the Pope, you know, comes up in his motorcade. I mean, who knows? Who knows what you do? But somehow we were able to, through our own gifts and talents, but through the, the miracle of Almighty God, give some people out there who just had the opportunity to listen, not even watch on TV, let alone be there in person, the experience of the Pope coming to visit them. And that, and that was, I will still remember that woman's phone call because uh, I take very little credit for that myself.
0: So did that elderly woman send you her last two coins as a, as a token of appreciation? Not yet. I think she's still doing well. Very good. <laughs> well, you know what? I wanna... Other people can if they want. <laughs> Bustedhalo.com. Uh, how about a plug? Go ahead. Slash donate.
1: <laughs> very easy.
0: <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you very much, Father Day, for uh, our first ever wine casts. This is great. I like the wine, particularly. Not... And the talking. Two things I like.
2: Very
1: good. Yeah. Well, we'll... Uh, well like we'll you guys. You guys are good hosts, I think. We've you've got a future a little in this. practice. What
0: do you think, Wendy? I, no. think,
2: I think it's going really well. I think you need a little practice, but it's great. No, I it's like the sound.
0: I like the sound. <laughs> and now I think we've got some wine to finish. I think so. Okay, here we go. May I help you? Yes, you can. It's delicious.